I think I've always wanted to write a book ever since I was a young girl. I found Stephen King when I was about 12 or 13. It was one of my first great passions was Stephen King. And I, you know, fell into the rabbit hole of just like reading every single book. And one of the books that meant the most to me was a book called Different Seasons. It has four novellas and one of them is The Body, which was made into the movie Stand By Me. It's really the closest at the time that Stephen King had come to like doing an autobiography based on his childhood as a precocious storyteller. And I really identified with the male protagonist whose name is Gordy. And he um, he's a writer. And I just knew, I remember the first lines of it. I used to carry them around in my purse. And it said, the most important things are the hardest things to say. They're the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. And the first time I read that, I had what I now know is like the shock of recognition, one of the great Uh, gifts of literature, which is that you understand that somebody else sees something that you thought was unique, unique to you. Hello, Set Leslie Bruce listeners. Welcome to part two of my interview with Sarah Heppola. In this episode, we are going to talk about her music background, her love of uh, Xanadu, and a few other topics. So without any further delay, here is my discussion with Sarah. So Sarah, Hi. I always like to start at the beginning. <laughs> As we are 30 minutes into this, you grew up in Dallas. What kind of music did your family listen to? Oh, my God. Well, uh, like I told you, my mom was this classical music fanatic. So my childhood was like wall-to-wall Mozart and Bach. Okay. Because she had on WRR 101.1 constantly. And she was so deprived of music in her childhood that she wanted to give it to her children who did not, we were not takers. We did not want it. And so I always say that like, I built a counter assault in my bedroom with my jam box. And so I, my radio was, and our house was small. So when you had that classical music playing, like it would drift into your bedroom if you didn't push back. Right. So I had to have, I usually had 92.5 and which was at that, not the edge yet. It was 92 and a half was what it was called. And then 97.1, the Eagle. Um, and then it went back to 92.5, the edge. Yeah. Basically these were top 40 radio stations that were on in my room all the time before I hit on top 40 radio though, I was a musical lover. So, um, I think my first vinyl record was the soundtrack to Greece. I'm pretty sure it was a double album. It opened, it had the whole, all of Rydell high and pictures and, and so, and, and I also was obsessed with the TV show Fame, which was on television at the time. I had the movie soundtrack, though I'd never seen the movie because it was R-rated. Um, this was in a sort of, also Flashdance was around this time. I was obsessed with that. So all these albums 
are uh, sort of created. They're they're all, but but the but the album that I just loved above all others, and it was is still my to this day. I believe it to be the best soundtrack of all time. Is Xanadu. So I, I pulling back the curtain when I reached out to Sarah and she said, sure, let's talk about it. And like, what's your podcast about? Well, it's, it's about music. And I said, and it's, it started out as a Bruce Springsteen fandom, but I branched out and I still do tons of Springsteen fans, but I'm looking at others. So, you know, whatever your favorite musician is, we'll love to talk about it. And you talked about your, you've, Born to Run has been playing in your head and you probably want to talk about that, but you said, but I want to talk about ELO in the Xanadu soundtrack. And I said, oh my God, I love it. And so I even quoted you little lyrics of the, to to, to make you smile. I am a huge ELO fan. I I love that. (laughs) And I love the soundtrack. You know, and I, I really think, I mean, first of all, I just think Jeff Lynn is a genius. I think that um, the musical soundscape of ELO is just extraordinary. It has some kind of psychic calming effect on me. So particularly, so the Xanadu soundtrack itself is, you know, they were, there were sides to albums back in the day. Yes. So the first side is Olivia Newton-John, who was one of the biggest stars of the era. And she did the songs along with, I believe her songwriter is John Farrar, but I can't remember exactly. Um, and Gene Kelly is on one of them. They're, they're fun. They're beautiful. The song Magic is sort of mystical and wonderful and a perfect roller skating song of all time. Yeah. But where I believe the soundtrack really begins is with side two, side the B side. And it opens with an extraordinary song by ELO called I'm Alive, which I want played at my funeral. And now I finally have that on record in a podcast. Yes. And, you know, it's just this like unbelievable velocity of sound and melody. And it just keeps changing. Like it changes keys and it, you know, and then, and and it just keeps getting like, upping the stakes and then um the next song is called the fall which starts very slowly kind of low it's sort of a low throb you don't think it's going to be much of anything and then it also really explodes into this just like i always think of people like rollers it is a xanadu if you don't know is one of the few roller skating movies the the olivia newton john plays a muse that has come down to earth to inspire an album artist to create a place called Xanadu where everybody can roller skate, but they're roller skating through much of the movie because this is peak roller skating. And so the songs just have that incredible sumptuous glide to them. And I have listened to these songs, driving, uh, dancing, uh, smoking, sitting around, walking, flying, I've just done everything. I listened to them just on repeat and I love them so deeply. The third song in that opening trilogy or triptych, I should say, is um, Don't Walk Away, which is uh, just like a melody blast and uh, just beautiful, uh, kind of a ballad, but also kind of a, like it's kind of a rocker at some point. And, you know, those three songs alone, that it's already the best soundtrack of all time for me, just for those three songs. 
And then there's some other stuff on the on the other side that I could skip, but there's a great song called All Over the World, which is just a great party jam. Just like yes, an all-time great. That's the one that you quoted to me today. Yeah. And then of course the classic song, probably the best known of all the songs on the soundtrack, which is the song Xanadu, sung by right. Olivia Newton-John, which I took the title for my next book from Xanadu, uh, from a line that would not leave my head. Because when I was working on the second draft of this not, uh, book, I actually listened to Xanadu only for about two weeks. And I, I, I texted a friend of mine, what is the world record for listening to one song? And he was like, I don't know, but I think you're on your way. I mean, it was literally the all day yes, from five in the morning until eight at night. It would just play on my speakers. That's the only thing. But it wasn't the Olivia Newton-John song version. It was the, the Jeff Lynne version, the ELO version, right. which has a little bit different of a pace. Anyway, the name, the line is a place where nobody dared to go. The love that we came to know, we call it Xanadu. And I named my book, The Love We Came to Know. Is it an... Is it a novel you mentioned? Is It's a memoir. Saying, it's, it's a, a memoir, memoir about memoir. dating. It's a okay. memoir about singlehood and being somebody who wanted a husband and wanted a child, but never got those and um, still had an extraordinary adventure anyway. And uh, the love that I got along the way of sort of trying to chase love that I didn't get, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. And you're talking about that made me think of, I think it was Michael Crichton who said that when he was writing a book, he would eat the same lunch every day. That makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, I do just, that too. just because it, one, you didn't have to think about it. And two, it kind of just that routine. So I could see. Totally. Um, I, I, always, I said the other day to my mom, I said, I just need to make food happen. Yeah. Like I just, I, I literally, I can't take taunt because she's trying to get me to eat better and cook my meals. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I can't, I don't, I just need to I eat power bars and I, eat peanut butter with a spoon yeah. and I'm doing that, you know, I need to make the hunger go away. Yeah. Um, and I remember what the closest came to that is um, I was, I was at my regular, I was at my job a few jobs ago and I had to write like 15 performance appraisals, you know, and being the usual guy I am, you know, they're due in like two days. And so I'm like, okay, now I guess I'll start writing on them, you know, and so, you know, I'm, I'm in my office and I've got the door shut and I'm working late. I had a, I put in a, a John Hyatt CD. Um, and uh, to this day, uh, Stolen Moments, if they ask me, what's your favorite John Hyatt? I go, well, Bring the Family changed his career, but Stolen Moments. And I just had that CD on repeat just repeat over and over again as I'm writing performance appraisals. That's so fascinating. I don't know that song. Okay. Yeah. So John Hyatt. Yeah. It's uh, he's a fascinating musician. Um, are you ready for this thing called love by Bonnie, Wright, Bonnie Raitt? Sure. He had written that. that. And, you know, yeah. So he's done a lot of writing for that. Um, but that, that over and over again, um, that repetition and, my wife is really good at she will put one song and you know in the car and just you know 
20, 30 times in a row. She'll just play that same song over and over and over again. And uh, she said to send you love. She can remember because it was after Greece and you pick, you know, there's Olivia and she bought the Xanadu album and she played it and just loved that soundtrack. So she said, send Sarah love. I'm right there with you. <laughs> well, it's, it, I appreciate that. And I do think that Xanadu is like, it was, a, it was a really like train wreck of a film. Yeah. Um, it was a big box office disaster coming off right. the heels of Greece, which had been a smash. But I do believe that the album is is truly a masterpiece. I think it's hugely underrated. And yeah. when I talk about it, I tend to get blank stares from men and I tend to get really enthusiastic nods from women. Yeah. Um, my age, a lot of girls are like, oh my God, Xanadu, holy crap. And, um, you know, I have to say, I am not one to cry sexism in the media very often. But I will say the total like lack of rock critic props for that album yeah. is a blind, a blind spot, if not outright sexism, because it's seen as a, a girl thing. So I, I, I cannot remember. I think it's um, Jeff Lynn live at Wimberley or something. There was a recent documentary that mm-hmm. showed Jeff Lynn behind the scenes and showed the full band he was performing with. And he does Xanadu and he kind of makes a joke about it. Yep, yeah. that's right. I'm doing it. You know, yeah. and, and and I love that, that he owned it. It's a great song. Um, I, I had a guy on the podcast who does an ELO podcast a few years ago mm. and they were going through... Um, every ELO album in chronological order and then each song in the album. So they go through an episode. And so I was telling him that um, I remember um, whenever a new world record came out. So it must've been 76, 77. I got it from Columbia house, right? Cause I was in Columbia house records. Oh, hell yeah. I was in several Columbia houses. Cause I used to scam yeah. them out of money by changing my name. I saw that in your book and I smiled so much. So anyway, I got new world record and I was telling him that, um, you know, telephone line and, um, Rockeria, one of my favorite songs. And he says, do you know, it's rock aria is the correct hmm. pronunciation. And I, I went, know that what he says yeah he says i we were corrected i said no it's rock aria he goes nope it's rock aria that makes because sense because i went i i this light bulb like yeah she's an opera singer of course it is of course oh like how could i've not seen that oh that's awesome you one of the things and we're going to switch now to um your book is uh, blackout remembering the things i drank to forget i told you before we hit record a very i don't want to be a cliche but a very soul bearing like you this is the picture of no touch-ups no you know i'm not you know often i have a good friend who says he 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 lost a friend unexpectedly and he posted this email said you know on social media and said look I'm missing my friend Dwayne today and I cannot find a picture of him and I together 
So I'm telling you, when you, with, you're with your friends, take a picture. Don't worry about if your clothes didn't fit. Don't worry if you, you're too fat. Don't worry about if your hair is messed up. Don't worry. Just take the picture because later you're going to care. And your is a candid photo of your life, either before sobriety and after sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk a lot about it, music in that. You talk a lot about mm-hmm. the music you were listening to, the, mm-hmm. the car trips you were taking. So I'm going to kick back. Why did you decide you wanted to write the book? I think I've always wanted to write a book ever since I was a young girl. I found Stephen King when I was about 12 or 13. It was one yeah. of my first great passions with Stephen King. And I, you know, fell into the rabbit hole of just like reading every single book. And one of the books that meant the most to me was a book called Different Seasons. It has four novellas. And one of them is The Body, which was made into the movie Stand By Me. It's really the closest at the time that Stephen King had come to like doing an autobiography. It's very much based on his childhood as a precocious storyteller. And I really identified with the male protagonist whose name is Gordy. And he, um, he's a writer. And I just knew, I remember the first lines of it, I used to carry them around in my purse. And it said, the most important things are the hardest things to say. They're the things you get ashamed of because words diminish them. And the first time I read that, I had what I now know is like the shock of recognition. One of the great Uh, gifts of literature, which is that you understand that somebody else sees something that you thought was unique, unique to you. I was extremely shy at the time. It was very hard for me to talk about things, but the idea that they were especially hard when they were even more important. I just, I had never put it together before. It's a simple idea. It was profound to me then continues to be. And, you know, I just loved Stephen King. I knew I was going to be a writer Um, I was good at it. I probably had been telling myself stories as a kind of lonely kid for a long time. And so, uh, plus I'm Irish. Um, They tend to be uh, full of blarney. And, you know, I I am status seeking and and you you swim where the water is warm. So a lot of people are telling you that you're good at writing. You're going to keep doing it. Now, I went through a period of time where I wanted to be an actress, but that water wasn't so warm. I wasn't quite as rewarded for that. Um, so anyway, I wound up being a writer. I always wanted to write a book. I went up from the time I was, you know, I thought it was a tragedy when I turned 30 and I hadn't written a book. So, you know, as I'm going into my thirties and I still haven't written a book, I'm your friend at the bar. That's always talking about writing a book. I'm always going to write a book. I, And I never wrote more than like two pages of any book, never. Not since I was probably 13 years old. And so, because the drinking had really replaced creation. In other words, there was no sitting down and writing when I was away from work. There was sitting down and blabbing and talking and having that flow state. I mean, I think one of the reasons why, one of the things I'm attracted to is this flow state, whether it's conversation, music, you can find it really easily. Um, drinking, you can find it. Uh, sex, you can find it. You, you can find it all sorts of different places and I'm always seeking it. And drinking just happened to be like a really strong go-to for me for a long time. And 
so I, I wasn't writing. And so then when I, I, my, my life started to just get smaller and smaller and smaller. So that by the time I'm 35, I just, I, I can see very clearly that I have to quit. I did not want to, I loved drinking. I loved the drinking life. I still go to the bar to hang out with my friends. <clears throat> I think everyone gets kind of stupid after five or six drinks and I tend to go home, but I still love that kinship and the, I don't know, this idea that you all belong. I think it's very powerful because I still really love it in those places. <clears throat> so I always wanted to write a book, but I thought that my writing career would be over when I quit drinking. So that was one of the big ironies to me was that I wrote a book and why I wrote a book. I wrote a book to prove that I could do something in sobriety that I didn't do in my drinking life. I did it to make money and get out of a job at Salon, which was becoming increasingly hard in the wake of the 2008 recessions. We, there was really a crush on and I was working all day and, and quite unhappy, um, as was most of the staff at the time. And, you know, I wanted to help someone else. I'm sure that was in there. I remember, I remember reading all these, there was a while in sobriety where all I could do was read. I didn't want to be around people. It had really reawakened a very shy, introverted part of me, more girlish. And so I would stay home and I would read these books like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Addict, I think. That's the Bill Clegg one, I think. Um, David Carr, Russell Brand, all the, I was reading all the addiction books that were out there at the time. And I remember thinking that there wasn't one that I felt like reflected my life. Now, Carolyn Knapp had written a book in 1997 called Drinking a Love Story that's, I still think, the most exceptional one in this whole genre. But culture had changed since 1997. That was a story about women's hidden drinking and mine. My story was one of women's bravado drinking, swashbuckling drinking. Yeah. And the idea that you're strong and empowered because you can drink like the boys, which was my story. So I didn't see that anywhere. And I thought maybe I could add something to that. But, you know, and, and I don't want to poo poo the, oh yeah, I thought maybe I'd help someone because that was very important to me. I almost didn't make it through the first year of my sobriety and I held on to any ballast that I could, but I do want to put it in perspective that I just had a lot of like monetary and capitalist like reasons for doing that. Yeah. It didn't involve helping people, but you know, that said, whenever I hear that that book helped people, it, it makes me happy. I'm so glad. Well, and on your website, you know, that on your frequently asked questions, right? Like, you know, people want to help and it, you get it enough that you actually cover that on your FAQ, which I thought is interesting and very kind of you, right? You're addressing this. And so it's good. I, I remember reading Tim Callishaw, who's a local sports writer and drunk on sports, right? He wrote a very candid book about mm -hmm. how being a writer, like he says, drinking Heineken's with Jimmy Johnson is, would he have gotten the same kind of stories if he wasn't mm -hmm. sharing that? And I, I loved your honesty about, is my creative gene fueled by alcohol? And then mm -hmm. to find that it wasn't made for a, 
a really cool story. Um, you're not, you're not very kind to yourself in the book. Um, I, I, at times How reading so? this, what do you mean? Huh? well, I just think, what do you mean? I think, I think there's a lot of stories that I would, I would have, I guess maybe, you know, I'd like, eh, do you really want to tell that one, Sarah? I mean, that was, you mean, I think you're not being kind to my stories because I think they're great. Oh, I I, love the stories. I think what you mean is that I wasn't very discreet in my storytelling. You, you did not go out of your way to paint yourself in any better light. And, and I think, I don't know. I almost feel like, and maybe, you know, yourself, you absolutely know yourself better to me, but I'm like, wow, she's really hard on herself back that time, you know? Well, I was hard on myself, but I'm trying to drill down into what it is that you mean when you say that, because see, yeah. I think there, it's always very interesting to me when people tell me that the book is brave, because what it tells me almost immediately is that they wouldn't have done it. And that's a really interesting thing to hear. I didn't particularly think those, a lot of those stories, I used to tell those stories at parties, yeah. the stories about mooning people. And that's, I mean, it's not, sexy but i used to tell it all the time yeah stories about tripping downstairs there's one story that's like the centerpiece of a chapter that's really really hard it was really hard to tell to tell it in its honesty not because it was so traumatic yeah but to actually get the nuance of some crazy vector of complicity victimization desire defeat, loneliness, some, 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 something like that all wrapped up in there to try to get that right. Uh, that was really hard. Um, and I was certainly not kind to myself when I would wake up after a blackout and beat myself up. I mean, I really thought I was a piece of shit, but I think it's kind to me to tell the truth of my story as it happened. It's true that I am harder on myself than I am on other people, but that's because I'm the one telling the story. I think it would just, you have to err on one side and it would yeah. feel so wrong to me to be harder on other people than I am on myself. I am not in this game to tell their truths and to make, the, I'm, I'm here to do my deal and to tell a small personal story that might have some universal truth. And in order to do that, I find that the specifics and I find, you know, there's, I, I, I forget, is it Ira Glass? that said something like most people tell the stories like they're the hero or the villain, but they're neither. And, and I thought about that a lot. And I also thought about the fact that most people make their stories worse or better. And I was trying very hard to make mine right-sized. That's, that's very interesting. And I think that's really well said Um, because I do think we, we, I think one of the problems, if I can get, I, I, and this is not an original thought to me, I do not remember who said it, but someone said one of the reasons why as a society we have a lot of problems is I want to believe the best in myself and the worst in others. Like when I say a sure. joke, it's I'm just being funny. When you sure. say the joke, you're a racist POS. Totally. Right? And 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 I think um you and, and I certainly don't mean in fact I I'm awkwardly just 
admiring you and complimenting you that, you know, you painted a very clear picture of, I like to drink. There are times when drinking worked to my advantage, but then ultimately it stopped working to my advantage. And my journey, I had to move from something that I enjoyed and loved. Right. Well, I hope you feel, I didn't mean to put you back on your heels a little bit. I'm just always so curious about the reaction to the book. Yeah. And I've been getting it for many years. And so I'm very quite used to it. So it doesn't ever, nothing ever really ruffles my feathers. No, and I I did not. But but I'm curious, what were the moments that you thought, wow, I can't believe she put that in there? Um, I think, um, I guess what I really loved, and I tweeted the line about, do you think someone, you know, and I'm going to do this wrong, but do you think someone roofied you last night? Do you think someone drugged you? And yes, someone, you know, si- you know, uh, unknowingly slipped me 10, you know, uh, vodka martinis, whatever the drink was. It, it, the, yeah, like, can I, will, will you allow me to do the line? Please, though? please, so, yo, please. My friend asked me, do you think you got roofied? And I said, yes, someone slipped me 10 drinks. Yeah, and I just, I love that line. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be funny. She's going in, but you aren't funny. You you do not sugarcoat that you you had bumps and bruises, not just symbolically, physically. Like, oh, I fell down enough because I drank that there will be bruises on my shins, and and so I think that was just. Um, I could not put the book down. I just was devouring it um, partly because I knew where you were now. I knew you were uh, in sobriety. And so I wanted to see how you got through this journey, but I was how, how, how much crap it did she put herself through or did her drinking put her through? So I guess. Can, can, Can we say though, that I'm sometimes funny? Oh, you're always funny. The book is so GD funny. I, 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 I love the book. I, I was pissed at my Kindle. I, I go back and forth between reading on my phone and I actually have a Kindle. And my physical Kindle will not let me tweet. And so I actually, because oh, yeah. there were so many times... I wanted to, and I very seldom highlight, but there were all the times where I wanted to, oh, this is great. This is such a good line. I need to share this. Oh, this is such a great line. I need to share it. Okay. Um, it's, it, it, you don't feel sorry for yourself. You, 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 and you say, you know, and, and I guess why I mean hard with yourself, like when you talk about your friendship and your relationships and, and, um, I I have quoted to a couple people. Uh, I said there was the point where you are going to be intimate for the first time after you'd been on your sober train, and you I haven't smoked, I haven't drank, and I haven't effed in X about. I was ready for it, oh, and yeah, I just yeah. I just love that line. I just thought that was that's so funny, yet at the same time so true. Well, if you're going to be in this game where yeah. you're going to ask people to give you seven hours of their time for your yeah. dinky story, you better bring something yes. that, and, you know, and, and so I really try to come correct. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like, I don't want to, 
have any i'm always trying to find like a really really strong deep connection yes. between me and the reader me and the listener so that there's no veils it's like a real yeah. intimacy i think i remember telling somebody it's like in the press for this that i would think i'm an intimacy addict and i probably am you know that's what i want with sound and that's what i want with books and that's mm-hmm. what i want with relationships and that's what i want you know it's just like this I want this like full immersion. And so I always wanted my story to be that. And so I just, you know, I, at the same time, there's stories that book doesn't tell. So it's always interesting to me when a very common thing people say is like, you just put it all out there. And I'm like, well, I didn't tell you about the homicide detective that broke my heart about, you know, in, in somewhere around chapter, you know, seven uh, that I thought I was going to marry. Like there, there are stories that got cut out because to tell them, would take too much time and steal too much focus. Yeah. That's, that's why we have the second book. So I can tell stories like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm proud of that book. It was very, very hard before this podcast. It was probably the hardest thing I'd done other than quitting drinking, which was super hard, but so, you know, but it wasn't, I want I just want to say one thing is like, I just yeah. never thought it was brave to do that book because it was brave to quit drinking. It was brave to quit drinking because I was scared out of my mind. I thought I was going to lose my friends. I really continue to get disdain from colleagues and other drinkers. You know, it's, it's not cool, even though it's gotten less. Oh my God. My cat is like running in circles right next to me. It's hilarious. Even though it's gotten like more accepted to be sober, sober curious, and as I get older, more and my friends just join me by virtue of not because they're alcoholics, because they're just middle-aged. Yeah. I continue to get people that just think it's, you know, I'm uncool because I don't drink. It's still a problem dating when guys are sort of like, nah, I'm not that interested. It's a drag. It's always a drag. Um, it's really sucks to do something that you feel like is good for your life and it diminishes your value. That's a crazy thing to me. But that happens. So all of that is brave. Putting out the book, writing about my life is just what I did. It's just what I was already doing. I had wanted to write a book forever. I finally did it. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just calculating and opportunistic. I'm glad I did it and I love it and I worked really hard at it. But that's also just like, that's the job I chose. You know, Sarah, you telling that made me think of it. Um, I do not know. Yes, I know a little bit. Um, I was raised in a very strict Baptist household that if you, you know, there was a drink led you to the gutter yeah, and you were a bum, right? No, do not cross go, do not collect the $200. So so when did you have your first drink? So, so I didn't drink at all. And then in high school, I, that became part of my persona is sure. I was the guy who didn't drink. Of course. So I didn't, I wanted to, I graduated high school in 77. I honestly had said, I never tried pot. I didn't yeah. drink anything at all. I, in fact, the first time we went to a bar, you know, we had our fake ID. Yeah. I was nervous about ordering a Coke because I didn't think you could order a Coke at a bar that yeah. they would laugh at you. Hey, fat boy, why are you here? You know, and so um, no wonder music became so important to you because you didn't have drinking. Right. So. So 1980, um, I'm. I, I, a friend of mine sets me up 
with a friend of his girlfriend at the time, um, Linda. And so Linda and I have a blind date and I'm talking about it. And I've, I've been a non-drinker. So the first thing I don't, you know, yeah, I don't drink. I don't drink that much. That's immediately the next question. I, the statement I got when I was, you know, younger. Yeah. And, um, and then <laughs> Linda, but, but by the way, we are now, we are married and we've been together forever. So, wow. um, she would like, you know, well, you know, I always drink beer from a glass and her friend Camille's like, what you talking about? I've seen you drink beer straight from the bottle and can all the time because they were uncomfortable that at 18, 19, I was this guy who didn't drink and, and they made them uncomfortable. And, and so when you started telling that story, I was like, well, that's been my whole life. And in fact, when I, um, when Lynn and I started dating, my best friends, Tony and Sandra said, and she drinks, she's going to get Jesse to drink. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so, uh, to this day, I have never been a big drinker. Um, wow. I will have a girly, I'll have a few girly drinks as they call them, you know, wine coolers or something, uh, during a cowboy game. And, uh, and, uh, so this past summer, um, I had a tumor in my stomach and they mm. thought it was cancer. So mm. they went in there and they said, we're going to have to get this tumor out. That's going to mean we're going to have to do a gastric bypass surgery to you. And it's the same thing as if you were trying to, you know, go through weight loss surgery, but we need to do it for you because this could be cancer in your stomach. Mm. And so and they said, the problem is usually you have nine, six to nine months of re-education to teach mm. you how not to be dependent on food. We've got right. to do yours in six months. Wow. So like you're, you have to limit caffeine. You can't drink as diet Cokes. Yeah. I'm, I'm listening. I'm just going to yeah. go get something. I'm, I've got my sure. thing. I'm listening. Okay. And so they're going through all these things. And one of the things is, and it's really going to be a problem with, you know, no alcohol with this, you know you know thumb stomach and i was like no trust me chocolate chip cookies chocolate cake right. you know chicken fried steak those are being my problems alcohol has never been food has always been and when i'm reading your book that's a lot where i connected where yeah. you talked about food uh, drinking i talked yeah I'm i talked right about food you know mm -hmm. in my mind i connected yes you know because the same things you said what do you, you go out to eat? You have friends over to eat. You let's meet for dinner. Let's meet, you know, because you were talking about let's meet for drinks. Let's do the things. The same thing. What do you do if you're not going for food? Like, you know, yeah. I guess coffee, but everything. So, yeah. So I really, I think I had to be like 23, 24 where I have. And if I, I don't know if I've ever been drunk. Wow. Yeah. It just, it was I, I always make the joke. I used my calories and food. I wasn't mm -hmm. going to waste my calories and alcohol. I wanted on food. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But when I was in Weight Watchers, I used all my points on booze. Yes. Well, uh, Linda will tell you, know, Linda would tell you that she would exercise so that she would be able to have three or four beers, right? Like she would do that. Um, and it's, um, 
I, I have family members that are that have been in the program. And um, my brother tells the best story. Um, you know, Lynn and I met in 1980. We got married in 84. Um, we moved to Dallas in 86. We had our son in 89. So they met, they fell in love, they got married, they had kid all in that order. How effed up is that? when we in recovery, a second or third date usually involves a U-Haul. And the idea that Lynn and I dated four years before wow. we got married, yeah. you know, was crazy. That's super cool though. Yeah. It, you know, like, but, yeah. I wanted to say something about binge eating because I, before I was ever a binge drinker, I was a binge eater. Yeah. I had been sipping beer and stealing beer since a very young age, but when I was in middle school, I used to get home from class and the first thing I would do is look in the refrigerator like it was a television. Yeah. And I, I couldn't not do that. I would, I would be, and I always wanted to lose weight because I was a girl and I was curvy too. And I would always be like, all right, today I'm not going to do it. And then I would get there and it would just be like, I, I have to do it today. And I would always eat the same, like really wild things like well, at one point I was eating raw bacon, which really freaked my mom out, but it was kind of delicious. And, yeah. uh, but I would get like peanut butter and dip it in honey or dip it in brown sugar. I did, there are all these rituals and it was not lost on me that I didn't let go of that habit until I started drinking. I mean, it's just like the energy transferred. So see if this sounds familiar to you. I'm going to pick up food at the drive-thru. I order the food, but I order an extra burger or an extra fry mm. to eat in the car so that when I got home, it doesn't look like I'm eating, I'm eating less than I actually am. I freaking love that. I've never heard that. No, I've never done that with food, but I do that with booze all the That's time. That's what I was thinking, right? Would you see? Oh my God, totally. Right? Because you get, I, I would get a bottle of wine. I'm eating peanut butter right now because I'm no, eating dinner and yeah. I was like really hungry. So um, I would get a bottle of wine and then like if somebody was coming over and then I would drink a six pack before that so that right. they would think that I was just drinking the bottle of wine. Yeah. And so, it, but, but what I would yeah. do sometimes you picked it all up at the same drive-thru. I was so full of shame that I would go one place for the wine and one place for the six pack. So they didn't know that I was doing this. I, 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 I didn't want anybody to have the beat on me. It was so sad. There was a TV show called Homecoming years ago. It was set right after World War II. And I, I don't remember the actress who played the mom, but she talked about that she would make chocolate chip cookies and that she would give the kids a dozen chocolate chip cookies and then put the rest aside. And then after the kids went to sleep, she would eat all the cookies. Oh yeah. And then would make another batch of cookies. Oh yeah. And then she I had to eat the dozen that were eaten. So it would look like nothing was done. Right. Yes. And that is I, me with my mom's beer too, by the way. You and I thought of that when you told the story, right? Like, um, and you guys, you guys got to read the book. It's it's amazing. But Sarah tells the story, right? That she would sip 
because her mom would not finish beer. She would put yeah. it in the refrigerator. And so you'd sip it. And then, oh, my God, I sip too much. She's going to know that the beer is empty now. So what would you do, Sarah? You got to open another can of Perlite and drink it down to that original level. You got to. And then you got you to gotta hide that beer can either in somebody else's uh, trash can in the alley or underneath. I, ha- I would crumple it and put it behind this like roll out bed, squishy roll out bed that I had because nobody ever went back there. It wasn't like under my bed. So and then I would wait until I would go out somewhere and I would take it with me. So, so, yeah, um, I don't know if you I, I remember the punchline. And if you can remember the story, I'd love for you to tell it that um, you were going to visit a friend. And uh, because you loved recycling, the empty beer cans were in the back seat and they were judging you. And your punchline was what, you know, if I didn't care about recycling, you wouldn't have known how much beer I drank. It's true. Like line, that was right? a very tense moment with my best friend from college. Right. I had been driving across the country to visit her in California and it was a five day road trip. And when I got there, she was like, I, my drinking had been bad for a long time, right. but she was really upset that I'd been drinking alone on that road trip. It was a little bit of a, a wake up call to her because we'd always been social. And I was really ticked off because I was like, my commitment to recycling these goddamn <laughs> Uh, empty cans has got me in trouble with her because yes. I would just throw them away. She never would have known. And, you know, it was so, it was so irritating to me, uh, you know, cause she acted in my mind, you know, she was acting like I drank them all in one sitting, you know, it's like, this is yeah five days. But, like, yeah. Like, Hey, you're focused on the wrong thing yeah. here. Like, right. I'm, I'm being good for the environment. Forget yeah, exactly. that. <laughs> I'm trying to save the environment. You're telling me I'm a drunk. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it was, it was, um, it's one of those many moments when somebody confronted me about my drinking and my immediate instinct was to go for the part of the argument that I could win or to excuse, you know, like I, I don't even know that I tell this story in the book that I I didn't, I didn't, I fell down a flight of metal brace stairs in New York when I was 25 and I ended up in the hospital with concussion. I was really loaded at the time and I had a giant knot on my head and I, and a black eye. And I just kept saying like I, those heels, I mean, like I was wearing, I had new shoes, they were rubber, they, you know, they, they caught all of that's true. It, it was true. They, they were new shoes. I would not have fallen down the freaking flight of stairs in them right. if I hadn't been drinking since about four o'clock that day. Yes. Yeah. Well, so we were telling the story and I was talking to Linda about the book and how much I enjoyed it. And I, I told the story that um, it was at a company function and they were giving away um, if you signed up to go to the company picnic, you got a free t-shirt and they had sizes from, you know, small to six X and me and my buddy who I just love, I was, I started saying, you know, Sam said, what size do you need? I said, Oh, five X. I'm not like those guys at the six yeah. X. They yeah. have just way let it go. 
I mean, those persons, whoa, they have a problem. Like, oh, they need to go. I love but, it. Yeah, but oh, no. And, uh, and there everybody was... needs a six X in their life. Exactly. Yes. Um, I, I cannot wait for the new book and everything. So let's talk a little music. Um, you mentioned you, you Born to Run has been playing a little bit in your head. Tell me a little bit about that. And, yeah. and your thoughts on Bruce. Bruce does not get mentioned you get you you call out a lot of bands in the out of and musicians in the book i kept waiting for a bruce reference so talk to me a little bit about bruce or any thoughts well i hope you're not going to be upset about this never it's not going to start it's not going to start well for us that's okay I think we're bonding, Sarah. I think so we, are, we are. We are. No, I, I, Bruce yeah. is your man. He's my, no, my that's man okay. too, but it's just like, it's been a long, it's been a long journey yeah. to him. Well, I'm a child of the eighties. Right. And, you know, I was born in 74 by 84. I'm 10 years old. That's my explosion into pop music. That's Michael Jackson, Madonna, uh, Cindy Lauper, Prince. It's just like, it's greatness. Well, in 85, Bruce has born, I'm sorry, born in the USA. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that song was very annoying to me. I mean, I thought it was overplayed, overhyped. I hated the video. I thought it was creepy. I thought he was creepy. He had a song called I'm on Fire. Yes. It always made it sound like he was, he was, it was some sort of child molestation. Well, hey, little girl, is your daddy home? In, in, even before the Me Too Society, what's going on? Can there? be a little creepy, right? And the whole smoldering of his voice and I'm on yeah. fire, it really sounded very Nabokov to me. Yes. And 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 nobody was commenting on it. And it was just like, this is weird. I don't get it. And I think this is important. He wasn't pretty. And I do actually think he's quite ruggedly handsome now. Right. But when you're a little girl that's in love with like Duran Duran and Rob Lowe. Bruce Springsteen is not going to push those buttons. Exactly. He's quite masculine. Right. And I just, I, so, so born in the USA, not a deal for me. I thought he was kind of dorky. It just like, and then as my taste trended towards indie rock, starting with sort of, you know, you start doing like, like the boy, my dating a guy that likes Elvis Costello and the Smiths and, you yeah. know, the cure and so like that. And then you get into college, the alt rock scene and then you get to the Austin Chronicle where it's like the flaming lips and the shins and the, you know, all that like indie greatness of the Austin awesome, thoughts. Yeah. And, and that was happening in New York too. Like I remember when I went to work at salon, it was 2006 and my editor direct editor was the former editor at the village voice. Mm-hmm. And she leaned over to me one day and she said, they're all Bruce Springsteen fans. And I was like, no effing way. And she was like, way. And for us, because we had been like deep steeped in like a certain kind of indie aesthetic, we just thought that was like so dorky. And that was what people liked when they didn't really like music was that they just went to the same concert over and over again and relived glory days. Oh, that was another song that I think right. is good, but like not that good. Right. Like I think it's basically like John Cougar Mellencamp good. Okay. And so, um, so I didn't understand Bruce's progressive politics. I didn't understand his hold on particularly 
leftists, which, you know, salon is very much that and like blue collar working class people. I didn't understand that at all. I just knew blue born in the USA and I was like super dorky. Right. So that was my, my boss, Joan Walsh was like a huge Bruce fan. And I like, of course, never told her this. I hope she's not listening, but she might listen to your podcast because she's a huge Bruce fan. You need to connect me. We need to have Joan join me on the podcast. She's an amazing, she's an amazing woman. And she's, and she's been like a million times to see Bruce. Okay. So anyway, where did this change for me? I came back, I quit drinking and I moved back to Dallas and I was at a friend's wedding and their reception was karaoke. And somebody, and I, I'm going to say his name. His name is Noah Bailey. He's a pop music critic, a rock critic at the time. And he was performing Born to Run. And he was killing it. And it was like, is this song? Like, who did, who's this song? And I knew, oh, it's Born to Run. It's Bruce Springsteen. But it's like, I'd never heard it. It was like wallpaper I suddenly noticed. And I was like, wait a minute, this song is amazing. And I don't remember, that was probably 10 years ago. And so it's not like I went and pulled up Born to Run on Spotify or anything like that. I was just kind of like, okay. Like I I remember watching the the Tom Petty documentary. I, I really love Tom Petty. And there was some talk about edge of darkness, I think, and, and some other, like the, like I was listening to other people that loved music. Like I did be like, okay. So it's not just like fan girls or fan boys yeah. is like, he is genuine greatness. And I was like, oh man, I didn't realize that, that he was such a big deal. And then about three Hang or on, four before, years. I want, I want to hear that, but do you know the Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen story? No. This is my favorite Tom Petty story. I, if it's not true, I don't care. I want to hear this. Yeah, absolutely. Tom Petty and Bruce are doing no nukes, you know, all this. And so they go to Tom Petty and they say, all right, now when you're out there, they're not booing you. They're saying Bruce because he's due up next. And the story is Tom Petty says, is, it a, is there a difference? <laughs> and uh, I like like what's the difference whether they're booing or they're the doing difference? either way they're saying get the hell off the get stage get the hell off <laughs> yes I love that story about Tom Petty so much it's beautiful well they're, they're two extraordinary songwriters two yes. extraordinary American songwriters yes um so, and and that have a lot in common I mean they have yes, like they a, a common sort of synergy so so anyway about three years ago I don't know what happened I get bit by the bug for a song and I sometimes yeah. won't know why. Yeah. But I got bit by the bug, no surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was listening to, I was, I was very hooked on a guy and I was not going to back down. I mean, that was like, definitely part of it was just like, it was my fight song. Yeah. Like my no fight retreat, for no glory, surrender. my no retreat, baby, no surrender. Yeah. And there's a war outside still raging and they say it ain't ours anymore to win, which had felt at that time. I have felt that for some time that we were in a kind of cold civil war uh, that the, the fractured dialogue of, of online discourse was just absolutely painful for me to be a part of. Um, I have a story coming out in the Atlantic on Thursday about really finally speaking up after five years of, of not speaking up. But a lot of my relationships with men were about finding a safe space 
uh, <laughs> finding a place where I felt like I could be heard and not judged to talk about the complications of the world. And this man was one of those, those people and I lost him for a variety of reasons. And so anyway, I would listen to No Surrender and I'm like a real on repeat kind of gal. And so it was just over and over and over and over and over and over. And, over. and then at some point, <clears throat> I must have not had the repeat button on because uh, I think like I use Apple Music because I'm a dork yeah. and it, it just randomized over to Born to Run. And I was like, what? And then I listened to the hell out of Born to Run. It was just Born to Run, Born to Run. Like, like it was epic. It was this grand American narrative. It was thrilling. It was just like, it was such a cinematic. It was such a beautiful song. And, and then I don't, what started Thunder Road? I always had Thunder Road and Badlands on a mix. So I always liked that song. But I swear to you, I think it was like a month ago. Maybe it was like two weeks ago. I started listening to that song and I have listened to it many days. It's the only thing I listen to on repeat. And I, it's the only song I listen to all day long. And I've come to think that it is a perfect song, which I don't say about many songs. Um, it is... Stunning poetry, truly stunning poetry. It's not, a, I see Tom Waits has always been, always been my guy and, sure. and, and Springsteen rivals him as a lyricist. Tom, I think is, is overall better in my opinion, but Tom can get really overcooked and he can push too hard with his imagery and his language and he gets, and he gets kind of circusy. But Bruce is just like in the zone, like with the, it, it pushes just enough and it's the strings on every moment are just so taut and it just, it soars and then it, you know, comes back like a feather rocking in a cradle. Like I just, I can't love that song enough. I just listened to it over and over and over again. And I, I know also that one of the reasons that I, this is a sort of mental health to me because there's certain songs that fundamentally soothe my nervous system. And that one does. See, No Surrender would get me all jacked up. And Born to Run gets me all jacked up. But, but Thunder Road is a really nice steady gallop because it starts slow. It gets exciting, but it winds you back down. And that's a really nice way. Like, it's a nice mid-tempo for my day. Those are some of my thoughts on Thunder Road. Where is Thunder Road? That's my question for you. Um, I don't know. Um, but this is a perfect way because I've kept you way too long. You have been so polite and so kind, but I end every episode with this story. Uh, Jay Armstrong is recently retired English teacher. He wrote a book, uh, Bedtime Stories for the Living, talking about him facing a very rare illness. And, um, but when he was an honors English teacher, his seniors would spend two days breaking apart Thunder Road. They would break through the lyrics. They would look at the imagery. They would talk about Bruce's themes. They would compare it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. Oh, it's better. You know, it's you better. Know. Yeah. So much better. But at the end of the two days, he asks his class, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Sarah, oh, I know the answer to this. Please, give me. She doesn't. She doesn't. And it's 
And it's sad because that is the life that could have been. And it would be extraordinary. And I think it's sad for her too. Um, she just can't leave. And Bruce is Bruce. Bruce is gonna Bruce. He's gonna break out of this damn town. And sadly, Mary is of that town. Uh, she can't go, but she'll always have Thunder Road, whatever that is, you know, whatever that sort of imaginary place where they can meet in the liminal space and take that crazy road trip that never was. Um, and that's why the song is greatness because it's, it's a world that couldn't be. We know this person singing it has to go on and, and fulfill his destiny as the man who is Bruce Springsteen. So yeah, so that's what I know about Thunder Road. Where do I fall in the, what do most people say? So you gave a great answer, uh, which I am not shocked. 60-40, um, 60% say yes. She yeah, because they're the hopeful. Car. They're so optimistic. 40% say no. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a couple of interesting answers I've got. One of them said that, yes, she gets in the car, but when racing in the street, when she talks about my baby sits on her daddy's porch, that's the same porch that she danced the parts. So they're not necessarily happy. Mm. Um, others have said um, Western Stars is a, an album that Bruce did a few years ago. And there was a song called Moonlight Motel, which the hero um, talks, he's at this hotel parking lot that's now kind of closed up. And he, he talks about, drinking a shot of Jack and pouring one on the ground in honor of his now deceased wife. And someone said that Mary got in the car and went all the way and they lived a life together. Now he's mourning her. My favorite answer is it depends if Bruce and the band are playing it and the end of the song is thus triumphic, you know, Clarence playing the saxophone. Hell yeah. She gets in the car. They drive off together if it's Bruce Solo and he's playing the kind of melancholy end, nope, she doesn't get in the car and he drives off. Jay, who asked the question, believes that she does not because she is afraid. Yeah. She, afraid. she, she's that you, you know, and he says the song, the, the song is about choices. The song is choosing. She's too afraid to choose. And, and he made the argument he didn't think he'd like the song as much if she did get in the car. He believes that's what makes the song. And Brian Koppelman, who was nice enough to be on the show a few months ago, co-creator of Billions, wrote, he said, we don't know the answer and that's what makes the song great. Is it left us. It's And, you know, the, I always bring up the, when I was in high school, I hated the short story, The Princess and the Tiger. Oh, I was sure. like, I, love I that. want, I want the ending. I want the ending as, as, you know, a 15 year old Jesse and, you know, English class as an adult, I now understand the beauty of that. And so that's a great answer, Sarah. It's great. All right. If someone wants to reach you, how can they? Well, <coughs> they should go to ye old internet and they can go to sarahepla.com. Or they could reach me on Instagram at the Sarah Heppola Experience. <coughs> Excuse me. That's right. Um, you could find me at the gas station where I'm going to get <laughs> cigarettes after this because I can't stop smoking. It's so bad. I'm going to stop. America, I will stop. Um, you can find me on Twitter <coughs> at the Sarah. No, wait. 
at just at Sarah Heppel. It's just my yeah. name. And then I have a Facebook page too. I have an author Facebook page for Blackout. And I post like, you know, speaking appearances and things like yeah. that. And you can contact me through my website. You can, okay. it'll send an email to me. And I don't always answer them, but I read them all. Very nice. Um, any final thoughts you want to share as I've taken almost two hours of your time? Well, why is Bruce the boss? Did anybody vote for him? <laughs> so the story is that the name came from when the band was very early in the day, people would pay him and he would pay everyone else. So he got the nickname of being the boss because he's the one that paid the band. I see. I see. Now, what I thought was very interesting, and he has, they, he did a film of Western stars he put out in uh, 2019, and it is, it's very Glenn Campbell, uh, Burt Bacharach, Jimmy Webb kind of songs. It's a collection of, I think of it as almost um, Len, Elmore Leonard short stories. It's that kind of the, the songs are, and they did a film where he rec- he has this beautiful barn and they he had an orchestra kind of this band play the album in its entirety it's a great film if you haven't seen it but in there between songs they did little things and he talked about there was at one point in his life if you loved me this is him speaking i would hurt you very quickly so that before you could hurt me and I and you know and he said based on a lot of therapy and a lot of discussion he's gotten better at that and so uh yeah um I I I love your story about Bruce I I love I now want to go grab the Xanadu soundtrack and play it you know at work tomorrow when I'm working you should it's a hot groove it is is. beautiful it is really life-affirming and it's and you know and one of the cool things about Bruce is that I'm just now discovering him. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm 47 years old and I'm just, I've only really da- dove into three songs out of his yeah. entire discography. So I have, you know, the next three decades to just like, what, what is the, what is the song that I didn't mention that you think is the most amazing? So, um, what would be a really interesting, and I would love if you're willing, um, he put out an album and, in uh, the fall of 2020. And at that time, I said, if we got a new president and a new Springsteen album, 2020 wouldn't be the shittiest year of all times, right? Um, Luckily, both happened. Um, But Letter to You is a film, and it's all about endings. He he tells the story that the um, his band in high school was called the Castiles. And the his good friend George died and Chris uh, Bruce was there at the hospital toward the end of his life. And, you know, and, and after George passed away, he realized Bruce at 72, he was the only surviving member of that high, his first band. And he, the album that led to it, and it's often about in the a lot of the I had a friend who I had a lady who does a podcast about grief and Mm -hmm. she listened to the album she said this album is totally about grief Mm -hmm. and um so I I will send you a link um yeah yeah, and I've also I also uh uh (laughs) 
I have done this in the past, Sarah, where I will have someone who is a casual friend, a casual Springsteen fan, and I'll send them 10 songs. Yeah. And then they'll listen to the songs and then they come back on the podcast and go, oh, this was shit. Oh, this was good. This was good. <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't I don't need you to love everything. You know, I think that's the beauty of music, right? It could be. And so everything. Um, For sure. Yeah. Um, the uh, it, it, the the last song of the album is I'll See You in My Dreams. And it in the chorus is I'll see you in my dreams where all summers have come to an end. I'll see you in my dreams. We'll meet and live and love again. I'll see you in my dreams. Yeah. Up around the river bend for death is not the end. I'll see you in my dreams. And so, uh, yeah, I'll send you a list of that. Um, yeah, please. And I'd love to do that. And I, and hopefully when the new book comes out, I'd love to have you come on and promote it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I got to finish it. I mean, I got to yeah. do another revision of it. And then first yeah. I have to like, like, like ride this, like, I got to like fight for the cheerleaders. Yes, absolutely. For the, for the next six months. Yeah, uh, probably. But, but uh, all these things will get done in time and I'd love to absolutely. be back. Thank you. All right. Listeners, you, thanks for sticking with me. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Go get vaccinated, go get boosted. Let's all be kind to each other because that's the only way we're going to get through this. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast would not be possible without my wonderful group of patrons. I want to send a special thanks to John Munson, Mary Thomas, Terry Smith, Dale Hosick, Andrew Goddard, Stephen Malio, Alex Samada, Anna Lynn, Chris Bloom, Holly Mack, and Captain America, a.k.a. Steve Rogers. Thank you guys for supporting the podcast. Your support means the world to me. And you are forever in my heart. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 